Pulp MX Network production. Thanks for all the support, Pulp MX fans. The Pulp MX app is now available for both iPhone and Android-based phones. For all your moto needs, shop at btosports.com and use the current discount code PULPMX. And don't forget to click the Amazon banner on PULPMX.com when purchasing anything from Amazon. It's the Steve Mathis Show, brought to you by RacerX, presented by BTOSports.com and ThorMX. The original Moto Podcast, featuring legends of the past, stars of today, season previews and race reviews, introspection, opinion, facts, and laughs. Here's your host, Steve Mathis. Welcome to the BTOSports.com RacerX podcast presented by Thor MX. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. As usual, with me on the line is a, a guy I go way back with and uh, is one of the top instructors out there today, uh, and as well as a fine, fine racer himself, none other than uh, the great Gary Semex. Gary, what's up? What's going on? Hey, thanks, Steve. I was just down here in Florida getting away from some of that winter weather up in Ohio. Yeah, that's right. You're Ohio born and raised guy. Um, and uh, what's going on in Florida? Like, what do you do? You doing your schools, obviously, and uh, kind of hanging out. Yeah, it's kind of like a working vacation. Uh, I do a little bit of schools on uh, private lessons, stuff like that. Work on my videos mm-hmm. and uh, do some riding. Man, do a lot, do some riding while I'm down here. It's uh, yeah. I saw you race Loretta's last year. How'd that go? Yeah, yeah, that was the, actually the first time that I had raced there. I'd been there about five or six times before helping riders, you know, that I was helping. And uh, this year, everything kind of lined up last year, I mean, for uh, yeah. for me to go down there and race. I ran the qualifiers and went down there and raced. And it, it was an awesome experience to go down there and race. You know, going down there to watch for a, for a racer type of person was, <laughs> was kind of hard, long week. Right. <laughs> But uh, going down there and getting to ride the track was was awesome. I mean, the work that goes into everything, the organization, the the track was just so well prepped, and yeah, it was it was just an awesome race all all the way around. You know? I was uh, I did the industry race there years ago, and I was surprised how rough it got. From like watching is like, oh yeah, it looks fun, it looks like a fun track, and then I got out there <laughs> and, I was, and I was like. Oh my God! Like it's really rough, and of course it's hot. Yeah, yeah, and uh, that really suited me, you know, because it takes, I guess, a lot of ex- you could say a lot of experience to be able to go out and find, you know, ride a track that rough and uh, in that kind of heat. So uh, it it really worked well for me. I've won all three motos, so I can't complain. I was going to ask you how you did because I didn't do my research beforehand. To see, so that was in the plus fifty. Fifty plus yep, fifty. Plus yeah. fifty masters class. Yeah. Nice. Uh, who'd you who'd you have? Uh, who was your competitors? Well, um, anybody like Matt uh, Tedder was was one guy that uh, you know I was watching out for because he had won there before. Yeah. And um, other than that, you know, I really didn't know the the other riders in the class, and mm-hmm. I, I didn't really know what to expect. I knew I thought Matt was going to be pretty tough, and uh, I just kind of went out there with an open mind and did my own thing, you know. And it it worked out really good for me. What are you riding these days? 
Well, I went down there on a 250 uh, Kawasaki 2012 250F. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. So you won on a 250F then. All right. Yeah. I, it played to my advantage because I'm a little guy. I'm only 145 pounds. Right. And the track really wasn't a horsepower track. It's mm-hmm. kind of more technical and and really bumpy. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I, I like the 250s. I've been riding them for a couple years now, and I uh, really like them. Do you feel like at this point your your schools and your your DVDs, GarySemix.com, by the way, for people who want to know more about what you're doing, do you feel at this point like your schools and your DVDs are have really surpassed what you did as a racer? And and you did some good things and some cool things as a racer, but at this point it's like everybody just knows you as the instructor guy, huh? <laughs> yeah, that's true. You know, it's, it's funny you say that because a, a racer's lifespan is – is so short, you know, by the time they reach the pro level and, you know, whether they got 10 or 12 years on the average, I mean, that's, that's a long time mm-hmm. if you have that long. And then, you know, you need to be about 30 years old or so, you got to find something else to do. So yeah, I've been teaching a lot mm-hmm. longer than I've been racing. That's for sure. Yeah. And when I was racing, you know, there wasn't TV, nothing was on TV really right. other than the wide world sports, Carlsbad GP. <laughs> but and the video and all that media stuff just wasn't as populated as today. So, but teaching has been good to me. I, I'm really happy with that. Um, and how'd you get into it? Okay, so your racing career, well, and we'll get into your racing career a little bit, but your racing career ends at some point. You decide to hang up the boots. I know you went to Europe in the early 80s for a year or maybe half a year. How'd you decide, like, hey, you know what? I think I can really help people learn how to ride a motorcycle. Yeah, I, you know, looked at some other possibilities of jobs, and I actually tried a sales rep for a while with for uh, Seat. Remember them? Yeah, seat yeah, product? Seat guys. Yeah, yeah. And I was living in California, and oh man, I didn't last two weeks on that. I just that just wasn't. <laughs> I just wasn't cut out for it. I mean, right. it wasn't me. You know, all I ever knew was was racing and training and all that kind of stuff. And uh, long story short, I. I even tried um acting career. There was a um, acting school near where I was living in California, so mm-hmm. I started going to there and learning about acting and actually got cast for a couple soap operas for just like day play or thing, you know. Yeah. And I had an agent and I got sent out for a audition for the uh, Universal Studios live action tours up there. They had like the A team live action Yeah, show. yeah, yeah. And it had motorcycles in it. Well, I got hired for it and worked there for a good one and a half years. And it was a good job because it was just um, part-time as far as during the week. It was three or four days a week. It alternated every week. Yeah. Three or four days. And then, you know, I was pulling in about thirty-five grand just doing that. Yeah. And still had time to do some other things, riding and stuff. Did some schools on the side. So... Three, that was good, but three you know, shows, after yeah. what's that? Three shows a day, jumping through fire and and doing uh, all the kind of stunt work, right, or whatever. Like, how was it? Was yeah, it dangerous it, or was it all easy stuff? Um, it was a basic routine. It was a twenty minute show that mm-hmm. we did in Universal Studios in the you know the tour where yeah. spectators can come through yeah. and do all that stuff. 
so it was pretty monotonous after a few months. I mean, you're doing the same show over and over again. You'd come in, ride some motorcycles, blow up some things, shoot people right. with machine guns, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Well, it was a pretty good show. It was funny. The, the audience loved it. But I know a guy. Um, anyway, I know a guy named Troy Adams. That? I know a guy named Troy Adams who did it uh, a couple years ago. But he was telling me that it was kind of sketchy. That he was on some sort of dual dual sport cruiser and it was all wet from the water because it was some sort of water themed one and he had right. to like hit this ramp on a 600 pound dirt bike dual sport and like jump over something and he was like kind of sketched out by it but uh yours was pretty easy um i wouldn't say easy you could definitely get hurt out there if you did something <laughs> wrong we had to jump some ramps and stuff but they were on 252 stroke kawasaki's they were pretty decent bike right right so and it wasn't too sketchy but uh, that ended after about a year and a half, and mm-hmm. I realized that, you know, to be a successful actor, I really wanted to be an actor and not a uh, stunt guy, but right. I got started so late. And to do that, I realized that you have to do acting for the love of acting, and I really didn't have a love of acting like I did for a love of riding motocross. Right, right. So after going through that, you know, I decided to get back into just motocross, started racing the local scenes in uh, Southern California and, and doing schools. Yeah. So you kind of had a philosophy of riding and racing all those years, and you just thought you could pass it on, I guess, right? Oh, well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, didn't want to be an actor. Right. If, even if I could have, I just couldn't. <laughs> just, yeah. I didn't want to do it. So I thought, well, I might as well do what I know. I know. You know, yeah. went through the school of hard knocks. <laughs> I learned the hard way. I know what <laughs> it takes to be a successful motocross rider. So I started, uh, you know, really studying the, the current riders in the sport mm-hmm. and um, started to practice what I saw them doing and right. became very aware of my technique and te- technique on the bike and started doing the schools. And um, it started a take off kind of slow i mean it was wasn't real popular back then as far as anybody doing schools not too many people were doing them so got that going after a while and started doing the uh technique dvds in 1992 when i first started that so kind of had all my ducks lined up and then in it was about the same time i met jeremy Actually, it was before that. It was in 1987. He was only 16 years old. Mm-hmm. I did a private lesson for him. And, you know, I saw that yeah. he had a lot of talent. We kind of stayed in touch and right. kept training him on and off throughout the you know next few years. And then when he needed a trainer, I had moved back to Ohio. But then when he wanted to hire a trainer, after he won one or two Supercross titles already, mm-hmm. He was 23 years old at the time. He called me and wanted me to come out and train him. And that was in, uh, like, December of 94, so it was coming up for the 95 season. And I did, and uh, we hit it off really good and, you know, kept kept doing that for, I don't know how many years after that, stayed with him and kind of started that whole personal trainer thing. Now uh, all the top guys have a personal trainer. Yeah, um, and that really got you uh, a lot of a lot of attention, a lot of limelight. Did uh, did your schools? Did the business increase? Were people like, "Hey, I want to get trained by this guy that that, that helps out McGrath"? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I had three DVDs out at the time, and I mean they were making I don't know five hundred thousand dollars a month in yeah. sales, and uh, that first month in December, my DVDs went from doing five hundred to a thousand dollars a month to doing ten thousand <laughs> a month. Wow! In December, Brian, yeah, yeah. ten thousand dollars <laughs> worth of sales on those three DVDs, and wow. and it just kept going from there. Yeah, Jeremy really. I lit a fire under him, he says, but he definitely lit a fire under my business, too. Do you, do you still talk to him? You still see him? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're still friends. I don't see him very often right, right. because I'm clear back in Ohio, and yeah. he's busy in California with his family and everything. But, uh, yeah, when we do talk, it's it's definitely good. Yeah, that's, good friends. What kind of stuff? I mean, he is uh, at his peak. He was, you know, the man and winning all these races. I guess outdoors he needed a little bit of work, but it seemed like when he dedicated himself to outdoors, uh, he just kicked everyone's butt at that. What kind of stuff did you yeah. work with him on? Like, what? Where did you see a weakness in this in this champion? I think um, probably the biggest thing that I helped him with was organization during the week and being on a routine and doing your training at certain times each day. And you know, the whole routine was laid out. This is what we're going to do, and going through it and doing it right and get him to eat right, you know, his diet and everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, the training that we did was, was pretty intense. I mean, he worked his butt off for yeah. sure. Right. It, and it was in the gym. It was cardio stuff and, and weight circuits in the gym. And we coordinated it all in with his riding and how much riding and practicing he was doing. And I knew when to back it off a little bit if he started to be overtrained and get mm-hmm. tired during the week, you know, we'd back it off and keep him so he'd peak out on race days. And he did awesome in 95 in both Supercross and Outdoor. Yeah. You know, he won the titles. And in 96 was when he was really, really peaking. Right. I mean, he killed it in Supercross. That's where he won yeah. all but one Supercross race. And in the Outdoors, he was killing it there, too, until he broke his foot. Yeah, yeah. He broke foot on that jump that he tried to do that he shouldn't have tried no it was uh no one was jumping that thing i was i was at millville that day and i was like what are you doing but he i yeah. guess when you have that much confidence when you're that on top right yeah he was that was his peak for sure and he would have killed it that year too in the nationals but he got second yeah. by a few points because he broke his foot but um when when that you, was 96, and in 97, he came back and rode for Suzuki. He had some troubles there with the bikes. Yeah. When you worked with him in 87, on a, you know, when he was intermediate or whatever he was, I mean... Yeah, he was did intermediate. You, did you see... I don't. Obviously, you probably didn't see what he became, but did you see greatness in him? Is there something that you spotted that you're like, this guy can actually be something special? Yeah, I think there was... Um, he was really good jumper already at mm-hmm. the time, uh, but his cornering and braking skills needed some improvement, body positions and stuff like that in corners. But what I really liked about him was as soon as I told him something about the technique in a corner and, and demonstrated it for him, he went out there and bam, he got it. Mm-hmm. He nailed it. And he saw right, oh yeah, that's better, that's better. And he learned so fast. Yeah, And that, that's when I knew that he could be really good. Right, right, he picked it up. Um, what's funny is, uh, uh, to deviate a little bit off that course, 
you and I have known each other for a long time. Um, a young Steve Mathis uh, trying to become, yeah. trying to become, uh, you know, a top Canadian pro. You you came to uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba, where I'm where I'm from, and did schools for two or three consecutive years. I don't remember how many years in a row, but our yeah. our club brought yourself and brought Marty Smith up um, to put on these schools and. Somehow, I don't know why, but my family and I got in charge of, you know, picking you guys up and getting you bikes and driving you guys around. Yeah. And so that was when, you know, I first knew you. Um, hopefully, my lack of success doesn't, you know, hurt your business. I don't know. I mean, I, <laughs> I, no, I remember those days, man. Yeah, that was fun coming up there and doing those schools. Yeah. And, yeah, you were real good about picking us up at the airport and hauling us around and, yeah, we had a good time up there. The first year I came up, Marty didn't come, though, for some reason. Oh, okay. And then a, a year or two later, we both came up. Yeah, we did, like, I don't remember how we did it. I don't know if we split it up or two different days with two different instructors. I don't know, but... Um, yeah, that's what it was, yeah. And then, do you remember me coming to California in the winter of 91? I stayed with you in, in uh, Canyon Lake. You, it, you Really? St- yeah, you... you st- I, yeah, now that you mention that, I do vaguely remember. I but you didn't stay very long. Was it a week or two or something uh, like that? Two or three weeks. You were living with Gary Chaplin, I think? Oh, yeah, up in Canyon Lake. Yeah, and myself and, a, myself and another Winnipeg guy drove down into my box van, and you took us riding. Um... Oh, yeah, I remember now. He was really good at wheelies on his bicycle. Yeah, that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Uh I'm glad I stood out for you, though. Apparently, nothing, nothing I did was good enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, what do you think held me back from becoming McGrath? Held myself? Like, what do you, you know, I'm sure you've you've studied this extensively. You've really thought about this. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. Um, I always said Jeremy was one in a million, but the top guys in the sport, you know, what separates them from the other guys that want to do it but don't get there it's a combination of a lot of things, you know, it's not just one thing, but it's definitely a combination of the desire to do it more than anything else in their life. That's right. what they want to do. And, and they stay on track. They don't get sidetracked by other things, especially bad influences or anything <laughs> like that. And, you know, nowadays I think it does take the parents um, being there for them when they're little and, yeah. and bringing them up the right way. And, give him enough time on the bike and the racing and all that stuff because the bikes are so awesome now on a 50cc you know ktm for instance is an awesome little (laughs) motorcycle for a for a little guy and then they go from there to the 65s those bikes are awesome too to the 85s and so on so they're riding really good equipment at such a young age and you have to start pretty young I think nowadays to uh, to really get somewhere in it, but that and just kids that are really active. If they're not riding their dirt bike, they're on their bicycle, mm-hmm. you know, doing uh, BMX tricks and stuff like that, or yeah, playing but... basketball or something. It's just being very active person. Well, I I kind of blame you for not turning me into Jeremy. <laughs> so. Oh, I get that a lot, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's funny. Yeah, no, we've we've known each other for a long time, and it, it's funny to uh, to be doing this podcast with you. Um, I remember I took a lot of motocross schools. I took Tony D like three times. I took Marty Smith a bunch. I even 
went down to San Diego and rode with Marty. I took yourself school. I think when I was a little kid, I took uh, a, a Gary Bailey school. Uh, I'm probably mm-hmm. I'm probably missing a few, but and I'm not just saying this because you're on the line, but I always felt like yours was more of a thinking man school. You were big on, hey, where's your body on the bike? Where's your elbows? Where's your knees? You know, always moving from center position, forward, back, side to side. Um, and it was definitely a little innovative, I thought, back then when I took it. Um, but maybe you can explain that a little bit for our listeners as far as your, your core beliefs in riding a motorcycle fast. Yeah, that's a good subject. And I think a lot of instructors out there, you know, when they teach a lot, they just kind of go through the motions, watch a kid ride, say a few things here and there, watch him ride, watch him ride. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I just couldn't teach that way. You know, I wanted to get results when I was teaching, and I really did my best to to put a format together, a program together that was going to key in on the most important techniques that they needed to perfect. And like you were talking about body positions and movements, where's your center, where's your arm position, your mm-hmm. knees, all those little things, you know, have to be perfected to get good at it. And I've learned a lot since then, too, when I did the schools up in Canada. Right. It's kind of been an ongoing thing for me to keep learning how to make a rider better in the most effective way. And what I, to this point, I can tell you for sure that you have to, there's 55 absolute techniques of motocross is what I've called them, and I've got them in my motocross practice manual, mm-hmm. 55 absolute techniques of motocross, and you really have to perfect all 55 of those techniques if you're ever going to get really good, because everything you do on the track while you're riding that motorcycle incorporates those 55 techniques. You know, they're always going on. Mm-hmm. So it's the basic foundation. If you're going to get good, you have to have that down. And to get good at them, you have to isolate them and set up a practice, two practice methods, really. One is stationary Mm -hmm. on the bike stand or whatever, and you go through the technique in your mind and move your body the best you can to perform the technique in the stationary position. And then you go out and I set up a drill or for the techniques. So say maybe it's a circle drill or an oval drill, mostly for corners. You know, Mm -hmm. there's things like that, some different turn tracks. And whatever the technique is that you're trying to learn, you isolate that technique and you do it in the drill. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you've done it in the stationary position. Now in the drill, you don't just start off at full speed which I have to keep slowing students down because that's what they want to do. Right, right. I have them first go out and do it actually in slow motion. I call it a slow motion rehearsal where you're going very, very slow around the drill and focusing on that technique. Let's say it's uh, a high over grip on the handle grips and keeping your elbows up where they should be. Mm-hmm. And... So you do that in real slow motion around uh, the drill. Okay, now once you've done that long enough that you can do it, in slow motion you feel, you coordinate your mind and body. Now you start to pick up the speed a little bit, but never going above 80% of your max speed until you've really mastered the technique. Right. So 
And you and when you do it that way, you can learn it. Just about anybody can learn the techniques. Mm-hmm. But what happens with most people, and it's mostly the younger kids, yeah. they want to go out there and ride like they already know how to ride and go as fast as they can. Right. They basically, they don't have the patience to slow down and learn something different, learn something new. Because it's a lot easier to do what you already know how to do. Yeah. It's a lot more difficult mentally and physically to do something you don't know how to do yet. But that's what makes you good. Right. That's what you have to do to get good. And when I do that with riders and say I have them for a day for a six-hour lesson, and I have to keep slowing them down, slowing them down. So by the time they get tired, pretty tired, then they'll finally slow down enough. <laughs> it's like uh, working with a, a lion or a tiger or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and you know what? After that, they get it down. Mm-hmm. They can do it. How many, so. and I need you to put your thinking cap on here, how many of the 55 rules did a young Steve Mathis break? I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure you can remember. I'm sure you can recall. No, no, right away. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh man, Steve, you're putting me on the hey, spot. Hey, you know what that I do? Many years ago. You know what I do remember? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, you know what I do remember though is you. You knew some guy that had McGrath's old Peak practice bike, 125 practice bike. That was pretty cool. We went riding with some guy that had that bike, and it was he bought it off Jeremy or bought it off Pro Circuit. I don't know. Oh, in, in Southern California? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, wow. Um, surprised. I didn't even know that. Yeah, I'll never forget that. Um, hey, where are we at with the state of motocross schools these days? Um, you've been doing this, you know, 20, 30 years, 25 years? A long time. Something like that. Since yeah. 1985. Okay, so there's a yeah. lot. There, obviously, yourself and Gary Bailey and Tony D and Marty have been doing it for a long time. But doesn't it seem like... And, of course, now you have these training facilities popping up. But, man, it's it's a competitive industry, isn't it? Oh, yeah. You know, with the growth of the sport. Mm-hmm. And then so many riders have gone through their career. So when they're getting finished with their career, they're starting to do motocross schools and stuff. So, yeah, it's definitely populated. There's a lot of schools out there for sure. Uh, not – yeah, go ahead. Well, you know, I can't say because – I can just go by stuff I hear from riders that have come to me and they've been to certain other schools and, you know, they tell me stuff. But I I don't know. I mean, to teach somebody, it takes a lot of effort Mm -hmm. and you have to have a lot of coaching experience. Like when I first went out and started teaching, it took me, I don't know how many years to start getting good at it. Right. Because I, I, I knew how to explain things but I didn't know how to get them to be able to do what I was explaining. What, yeah, what you're talking about. Right. Yeah, that took a long time for me to develop that, to know what the rider needs and to know how to break it down far enough that to get him to be able to do it. Um, and, and, and this is something, yeah, you develop, right, In t- over time? Yeah, yeah, over time, yeah. It's that time again. Thanks for listening to the Racer X podcast show brought to you by BTOsports.com, presented by Thor MX. I appreciate it. Don't forget to click on the Amazon banner on PulpMX.com to help out PulpMX.com. We appreciate it. 
listen to these commercials, buy from these sponsors. Thank you for listening. See you on the other side. X Podcast Show is brought to you by BTOsports.com. Whether you are looking for new gear, helmets, boots, or you need to rebuild your bike from the ground up, BTO is your source for all of your motocross needs. As a proud sponsor of the BTO Sports KTM race team and the heart of the BTO Sports amateur motocross team, it is obvious that we are about more than being just a store. We support the sport that supports us. us. We at BTO Sports want to give back to you, the listener, for supporting us and the Racer X Podcast Show. Use coupon code Pulp MX when placing your order at btosports.com for a VIP listener discount. Certain brand restrictions will apply. For 2013, JT Racing enters its next generation with the all-new Evolve Light, ProTech, Enduro, and Limited Edition collections, taking quality and innovation to a whole new level. Also available in youth sizes, each collection is built with high-grade materials offering its own unique characteristics to meet the demands of today's riders, both recreationally and competitively. To find a dealer or view the entire collection online, log on to JTRacingUSA.com. Championship proven. Many motocross apparel brands make that claim, but only Thor can back it up. As America's first motocross apparel brand, Thor has set the standard for delivering the highest quality performance racewear on the market for the past 45 years. With champions like Ryan Villapoto, Blake Baggett, and Dean Wilson, to name a few, our products truly are championship proven. To see all the new 2013 products, visit ThorMX.com or head to your local Thor Parts Unlimited dealer. Thor, the official racewear of Supercross. And business for you, though, nowadays? I mean, as good as it's always been, better than it's been, worse than it's been? How's business itself? It's a lot slower now than it used to be. I'd say uh, the late 90s were probably the highlight of of um, motocross schools and DVD sales. Actually, it might have been VHS sales at that time yeah, still. Right, right. But, but yeah, you were, you the were one mid of the, to late 90s was a highlight. You were one of the guys to first come out with DVDs and VHS tapes of techniques. Yeah, I think Gary Bailey was probably the very first that I know of. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I, I may have been next, yeah. Um, yeah. What's the one mistake you see out of a lot of people, a lot of riders, and maybe there's a couple mistakes, but what's one thing that if you could wave a magic wand, uh, you would apply to the most riders out there as far as what they're doing wrong riding a motorcycle? Are you talking about like weekend warriors or top amateurs? Uh, any, top any, pros? Anybody. You can break it down. Pros, amateurs, weekend warriors, however you want. What's the, what's the I thing? I think with the weekend warriors and the um, – amateurs till you get to the top amateurs but yeah. you know the other amateurs yeah. uh, probably the biggest thing is technique you'd be surprised how many riders come to my schools i'd say up until they're a really good b rider let's say anybody below mm-hmm. uh, a top level b rider right. anybody below that they have so many technical errors of riding the motorcycle that it's not even funny half of them don't know how to use the back brake right of course, they know how to put the back brake on, yeah. but to use it correctly on the track, now I'd, I'd say 
90% of them don't know how to use a back brake right. And can you give us a, a, an example of what you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, sometimes a guy will, like, like say, comes down straightaway into a corner, and you got people that don't use the back brake until they sit down for the corner, then they start using the back brake. Mm-hmm. you got people that pull in the clutch and put on the back brake so they don't kill the engine because they can't control the back brake good right. enough. Um, let's see. Oh, yeah, you got people that as soon as they go from standing to sitting, they let go of the back brake. Right, right. They don't continue to use it as they go from standing to sitting and mm-hmm. then use it longer while they're sitting until they finally, you know, let it go when they start to get on the clutch and throttle. And I'd say the biggest majority of them have a gap between braking and accelerating. Mm-hmm. They really should blend together. You should go from your brakes to your clutch and throttle. Right, right, which takes some uh, dexterity and, and control of all your, your senses of what's going on. Yeah. Well, like I was talking about, when you break it down far enough and mm-hmm. you give them the drill separately, the technique separately to do in drills that you set up yep. through the stationary position, through the slow motion rehearsals, and then start to add a little speed to it, they can all get it. They can all get it, and they can all do it. Mm-hmm. I bet by the end of that day, in that six-hour lesson, they're doing it pretty darn good. Um, but yeah. with that simple enough to do, but like I say, it's easier to do something you already know how to do. It's already programmed in your nervous system. It's an automatic reflex reaction. You know how to do it, and you just go out and keep riding that way. You keep making that mistake over and yeah. over and right, over right. again. right. So to break those bad habits takes some uh, patience I see, and know-how to know how to do it. I see a lot of the kids, and I don't see a lot of amateur races, but here and there I watch them um, when they're at the amateur press day or whatever, or amateur nationals or whatever. The scrubbing thing is out of hand. The, the, oh, yeah. The, the yeah. Gun, I mean, it looks cool. So half of them don't know how to do it, and half of them, the other half, do it on the wrong jump. Yeah, they just want to do it, most of them, because it looks good. And they've probably spent more time practicing that than they have right. corners. <laughs> so you see the same thing. You agree? Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, and what about... And, you know, it's a, it's a beneficial technique, but first le- learn how to go fast, and then then you can, on the whole track, and then you can mm-hmm. work on your scrubs. Right, right, right. Is there a... <laughs> Is there a obviously uh, you know it's easy to say Ryan Villapoto or or James Stewart uh, you know know how to ride a motorcycle perfect it's, that's easy to say but and maybe that's the case to the answer to this question but is there a pro racer that you can point to to say kids do that is there and and again maybe he's not even a winner maybe you know he doesn't necessarily have the speed or whatever but is there a pro racer that you're like that guy is as close to what I'm trying to teach as possible. Yeah, the first guy that come to my mind on that is Ryan Dungey. Yeah. I think his, his style and technique is pretty spot on. You know, I can't find anything in his technique wrong that he does. Mm-hmm. But you mentioned um, Ryan Villapoto. <laughs> Although I have trained him, and I tried to break him in this habit, but he never broke it. He, If you watch him race, his hand position and elbows are pretty low. Mm-hmm. It is not up like a lot of overgrip and elbows up. Yeah. And of course, 
he he gets away with that because he is so talented and he's so good of a writer. But I think if he would have perfected that way back in younger years, he'd be even better. Right. Than he is. Yeah, he just pins you know? it, doesn't he? He really grabs a handful of throttle. He steers with the back end and he just goes. Yeah. 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 And it when that when you drop your arms like that, you give up a lot of leverage that you have over a motorcycle mm-hmm. for your upper body movements and just controlling the bike better. Right. Um, but, you know, Carmichael kind of had some low elbow thing going on, too. I mean, those guys get away with it. Yeah. But, you know, there's always room for uh, improvement oh. on certain things like that. Yeah, i tell you, the guy that probably had the worst style, and not to take anything away from him because he was an awesome mm-hmm. competitor, awesome rider, but as far as um, just bad habits on bike was David Villeman, yeah, and yeah. with his <laughs> with his um, you know tall being such a tall, long legged, long armed guy, it really stood out. Yeah, and that was one of the biggest things with him was the low grip and low elbows. Uh, and on the opposite side of that, I've always thought Robbie Renard looked like he should be a, in a poster for riding a motorcycle. Elbows, feet, yeah. body, you know. Yeah. That's true too. He was, he still is. Has a yeah. very good technique. Yeah. You know? Um. Uh. So again, GarySemics dot com for people who want to check out what Gary's doing. Uh, DVDs on there. Um. Private lessons, group lessons, whatever. Right. Um. Although we're not doing this podcast to sell your schools, I'm doing it because I'm interested in you. But hopefully, maybe someone will call you. I don't know because of this. You know. Sure. Uh, sure. Um, Thanks. Uh. Let's yeah, get... check my website. I do have a lot of free writing tips on there and right. video previews and current videos. I just produced eight technique DVDs in 2011 and 2012, so cool. there's new stuff out there. And, and don't take Gary's failure to turn me into a top pro <laughs> as an indication of his skills. I was beyond help. Yeah, but look where you did. You still landed in the industry. You're I did. Doing great. Yeah, I great did. things. Yeah. yeah, I don't know about great things, but let's say good things. <laughs> um, okay <laughs> uh hey for, as far as your career goes um you were what year did you win the supercross title and off on a 500 that was in 1974 74 so you wrote you were been on a husky or on a what did you ride later on you you had uh well were you on a honda no. three years with husky and 74 was my last year with them then i went to kawasaki for three years right 75, 6, and 7. And then I went to Can-Am for a year, 78, then Honda in 79. What? And uh, then, what, what? I see a, uh, you were a lot of, you were a 500 guy, which, like you said, you were a smaller yeah, guy. Yeah, mostly, mostly 500, because back in the, you know, mid to early 70s, that was the premier class. Yep. So, you, yeah, you always, uh, you always wanted to stick with that if you can. Yeah. Um, what was the year of Can Am was like? What was that like? <laughs> well, Jeff Smith really did a a good job of putting the team together, and he did a big favor for me actually to to hire me because he had already hired Rich Irstead, mm-hmm. and they had uh, Mike Stark as his mechanic, and they didn't have enough. I guess the budget wasn't big enough or something to hire another mechanic. Mm-hmm. So they weren't even going to hire another rider. But Mike said, and my name was kind of coming up to hire me, and Mike said, I'll I'll be a mechanic for both of those guys. So 
but that's why I got hired. And I got a pretty decent salary, and, oh, and well, Mike was yeah. renting on both of our bikes. Oh, geez. So, so it was a lot of work for him, but... Um, was was this Jim Holly too, or the year before Jim Holly maybe? Um, Holly rode Can-Ams for... Yeah, I don't know when he did. It must have been before us, because this was in 78, and it was uh, Rich and me on the yeah. team. And the bikes, I mean, they were atrocious in the beginning. <laughs> they yeah, they yeah. were bad. Right. And long story short, Mike, the, my mechanic, worked his butt off and finally convinced Can-Am that, look, we need this and this and this. These bikes got to be changed. You know, we need new parts. New swing arms, new shock link, uh, not linkage, but the geometry of the mm-hmm. shocks in the back, because there were two shocks in the back. And long story short, that bike had a facelift. There was hardly anything the same on it. Oh, yeah. They redeveloped the whole bike. And by the Trans Am series, I, I remember Unadilla getting the new frame with the shocks moved up and swing arm and everything. The bike was awesome. It just... Mm-hmm. They took a ton of weight off of it, and it just handled better. They made it from, uh, I think it was a 370 to a 420, mm-hmm. and it it was really a good bike by the end of the year. Oh, really okay. good. I was waiting for the horror stories of how bad it was the entire year, but I guess, yeah, like you said, no, they, they redid it. Luckily, it, it yeah. kept getting better and better. I mean, it was so bad in the beginning of the year in the Supercrosses, I couldn't hold the bike. We couldn't hold the bike back behind the starting gate because the clutch <laughs> dragged so yeah, bad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, hey, when you was, when you won the Supercross title on a 500, I think it was four races, uh, four or five race series. Did, yeah, it was pretty short. Did you have a it sense? Was one of the oh. races was a double night race. Was it, it was uh, Houston, Texas? Yeah, it was two nighter. Did you have a sense of what Supercross would become back then? You, oh, no. no. I had no idea. No. Um, you know, us motocrossers back then, most mm-hmm. of us anyway, we really didn't like it. Right. We preferred the outdoor tracks, you know, a lot yeah. better. But, um, you know, it was what it was, and we were paid to race, so we raced where we were supposed yeah. to. Right. And that was part of the deal. Daytona was pretty cool. They had a good track at Daytona. Right. You uh, you won some nationals. You won some 500 nationals. You uh, had many, 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 many top tens in your career. Uh, is there yeah. is there is there a regret on your career, your racing career? Was there something that you turned down and you shouldn't have, or you you were you were you got hurt when you you know at the worst possible time? Was is there anything you think back on and be like, oh man, I would have done that differently? Oh yeah, yeah. I I'd say uh, you know hindsight is always twenty twenty. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I let's see, top of my head, probably one of the worst things I did was argue with the team manager at Honda in '79. Right off the bat, we didn't get along too well. Oh yeah. So yeah, yeah, I should have had better social skills, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> and um, I mean, you know, when I came into motocross. Motocross was just coming to the United States. Nobody even knew about it. Right. And I kind of got in at the very grassroots of the sport when it started over here. I was only about 14 years old when I started racing motocross because just just found out about it. You know, yeah. it just hit our shores, so to speak. Right. 
And so it was a whole new thing, and nobody knew too much. <laughs> so you just kind of swung it at the seat of your pants, you know, and learned as you went along. Mm-hmm. And I guess besides social skills, <laughs> um, I think I could have prepared myself better, especially in my late teens. I didn't really start getting focused on training until um, I was about 21 mm-hmm. when I started right for Kawasaki in 1975. And Cowie actually got me a, a membership at this really good gym. It was a sports type of gym, and they did all kind of testing in there and everything. And really, they were good. And Cowie got me registered in there, me and Weiner, and uh, mm-hmm. that was in 76. Actually, in 75, I was just on the Cowie team by myself there. Yeah. But um, anyway, I got serious about training and got more focused by that time. And nobody knew really how to um, prepare for motocross. Mm -hmm. It was two 40-minute motos plus two laps. A lot of our races was in the south in the heat in the summer. So apparently, of course, you had to be in awesome shape right so we just well how do you train i guess you just run and lift weights and practice you know i practice on the bike one time a week i was on wednesday and (laughs) i trained my ass off tuesday wednesday along with riding the bike still training and thursday and friday morning if i had time before my flight more fitness training than i did riding and uh, I can see now where I should have done more riding and a little less fitness little, training. Yeah. The other thing I should have done more of was testing on the bike and being aware of how the bike is working and being able to tell them about how it's working and what changes we might want to try and stuff like that. Yeah. Just didn't know any of that stuff. Just, yeah. Uh, got yeah. on it and turned the throttle <laughs> as fast as I could go. How's it working? I don't know. It seems all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, interesting, huh? Um, hey, I was reading an old motocross magazine a while back, and at the end of your career, you went to Europe to race the the GPs for. And I don't, you can get into this story about how long you lasted. I'm not sure if you went the whole season, but you had a year old works bike. It said in the story, is that true? And how did this deal happen? Oh yeah, yeah, that was a pretty good story actually. How that all came down. I became good friends with. Graham Noyce, because mm-hmm. he would be over here during the Trans Am racing, and he'd stay at my house. We trained together and everything. So long story short, he got me lined up to go over there and race. And in the beginning, it was in 1982, mm-hmm. in the beginning, I went over early to train over there and ride some international races before the GP started. I got a couple bikes from Honda, Germany, and parts, and Graham's brother. But full works bikes, right? I mean, Graham's but well, not yet. Oh, okay. All no, right, they sorry. were just production bikes first. Okay, all right. Yeah. Uh, Graham Noyce's mechanic's brother worked on my bike for me, my mechanic, and mm-hmm. he gave us some works parts, too, for my bike, like forks. We got some works forks from him. So anyway, I was doing the local thing. I mean, doing the local thing the over there right. was international races, yeah. and then the GP started. It was doing pretty good, and... um kept asking Roger. Roger was team manager for Honda for a works bike. 
And after one of the rounds, his fourth or fifth round in there, he uh, he pulled some strings and got me the last year's works bike, 1981. Okay. Yeah. But it was awesome because it was like brand new, and they had so many parts left over for it. Yeah, yeah. So I got to ride, yeah, the works bikes the rest of the season, and Roger really helped me out there, did a big favor for me, and, uh, you know, it went really well. I ended up seventh in the series that year. And, of course, Noyce was the 1980 world champion, maybe 81, but I know. No, 79. 80, 80, 81 was Lackey. No, 82 was Lackey. 82 was Lackey. Noyce won it in 79. Oh, okay, yeah. So um, the difference between eighty one, the difference between the uh, production bike and a works bike, huge back then. Oh yeah, yeah. back then the works bike was a five speed and it was a four eighty, uh-huh. and the the works bike was a five hundred and it was a four speed. It just yeah, really really yeah. a lot stronger, a lot more power for sure. Well, and smooth, you... easy to ride power. So you you would have been uh, against Malherbe? Uh, Noyce. Hawk and Kyle Quist, Andrew Romans. Yeah, Romans. Um, uh, how'd you like it? This is, of course, is pre-internet, pre-cell phones, uh, Iron Curtain, Europe, huh? This is gnarly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you had to have your carnets for every country border you went through and, and all that stuff. But, you know, hooking up with Graham's mechanic and his brother and getting to know all those people in their circle that they knew. Mm Mm-hmm. It was awesome. It was really, really good. I loved it. Really, yeah. really good. They, yeah, so, they took good care of me and showed me, you know, where to go and how to do it. And and I got to ride awesome tracks, practice, train, and mm-hmm. it was really good. But the only problem was the first year I was over there, I had this stupid uh, infection that turned into, like, I couldn't get rid of it. It was mm-hmm. down in my lungs and stuff. And I went to a sports medicine doctor over there in Germany when I was over there, and he looked at me and treated me and everything. He said, yeah, because he trained a lot of bicyclists uh-huh. over there. And he said a lot of the bicyclists get this from overtraining, and then they keep training when they start to get sick, and it becomes a very deep-seated infection, and it's both a virus and a bacterial infection. He gave me some certain kind of um, medicine to help my body fight it off and get over it, Mm-hmm. But I really wasn't well until June. Oh, wow. That's how long I was sick over there yeah. with this thing. So my training was really cut back. I couldn't do hardly any supplement training. I was just basically practicing on the bike and stuff. And I think that definitely held me back that year a lot, not having the stamina, the long motos. But uh, still ended up seventh. Yeah. So I was pretty good, pretty yeah. happy with that. And it always takes a year you know, to get used to everything and the formats. I mean, I did, I've done a number of these podcasts right. with, you know, a Trampus Parker and a Mike Healy and, and, and these guys that say, you know, it takes you a little bit of time. Did, did you not, nobody wanted to bring you back for another year or were you done? Were you over it? Oh no, I wanted to go back really bad. And Kawasaki had all but signed the papers. They gave me a tentative uh, contract. That's going to be the number one guy. was moving over to, uh, Honda. Mm-hmm. So I was pumped. I come back, I got factory ride right off the bat. Um, I'll be well. I won't be sick anymore. I got my feet wet. I know what to expect. Right. I was really ready to do it. And 
they were supposed to send me the contract. Well, I wasn't getting it, wasn't getting it. I kept trying to call him, call him, call him, and that was run by, um, I think his name was Alex Wright. Alex he was Wright, an yeah. English importer. Yep. He, he was the team manager for Kawasaki in Europe. Well, long story short, Kawasaki ended up pulling the, the budget. The Japanese pulled the budget for their race team, and they left it all up to Alec Wright for the importer mm-hmm. to fund the whole team. Yeah. So yeah. he didn't even tell me for I don't know how many weeks it was until uh, I finally got a hold of him on the phone, and he had hired all English riders. Mm. So by this time, I was left out without a ride, and all spots were pretty much taken. Mm-hmm. So... I couldn't get a ride. The only ride I could get was Mako. And you, you talk about another big mistake. This is probably one of the biggest mistakes that <laughs> oh, I made you did in my it. career. You took it. Oh. Because they talked me into, we're going to have a whole new bike. It's it's this and that and everything. The bike is great. It's going to be great. Blah, blah, blah. So I was kind of stubborn thinking, well, I'm going to show those Japanese. Yeah. I'm going to get on this Mako. Sand well, spider. long story yeah. short, man, it was a Mako Breco. It <laughs> broke so much. Every time I rode it, it broke, yeah. let alone in the races. I couldn't even get any practice in it. Oh. So that was a disaster. Did you make it to the GPs? Did you make it to all of them or no with the Mako Breco? No, not not all of them. No, I, I missed the first one because the bike was broke <laughs> and the, the truck that they were supposed that I was supposed to drive into the races with was broke. So I didn't even make the first one. It was in Switzerland. Yeah. We were stationed in Belgium. And then by that time I just was so fed up with the Mako that I I just quit. I yeah. just took them back and said, I can't ride these things. I'm not dealing with it anymore. Yeah. This this is stupid. That's so funny. that was that was a bad year. Uh hey in the in the Racer X vault it has you racing Hangtown in 87 and Steel City in 90. Is this true? Sometimes these things screw up, but. Oh, yeah, yeah. Is that you? That is true. Okay. Yep. Sort of. That's you true. You were hanging out, doing nothing, and figured you'd international? Yep, 1987. Uh, was doing a lot of local races because I wasn't working on the Universal Tour anymore. I was uh-huh. doing a lot of local races, doing some motocross schools. And uh, I did. I went up and raced the Hangtown race. Yep, the national. 1713 yep. uh, on a Honda in 87, right behind Hannah, who went 8 DNF on a Suzuki. Um, wow, you might have been, well, how old were you probably then? Uh, I'm yeah. guessing about 34. Oh, okay. 35, something like that. And then just for kicks, you went out and did uh, Steel City on a 500, getting back to your roots on a yeah. 500. Uh, yeah, that's when Jeremy came back to Lisbon to train with me. He oh, was 19, he? Okay. Yeah. and we were riding a lot and stuff, so I thought, I'll go down and do the Steel City National. I borrowed a bike because I had a 250 Yamaha. Okay. So this other guy that I knew had a 500 Honda. He let me borrow it and went down there and raced the race. <laughs> yeah, 2024. Got a point. Yeah, um, yeah. They were still doing the 40-minute motos. So. You would have been forty, almost 40 years old at this point. So, yeah. Yeah. Pretty yeah, good, Gary. Up there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's kind of funny. Uh, little little things you didn't know. Like, I I would have no idea, you know, uh, that you even Yeah, I didn't national. think you would know that. I even forgot about that. <laughs> no, the Racer X Vault knows all. So, 
Yes, um, it does. Uh, we keep we keep track of all that stuff. But sometimes, like if another Gary Semex raced it, we'll just put it under the one that we know, which is you. You know, so you always got to like kind of double check. We had that with a Mike Bell. Yeah, I haven't found any other Semexes. I think I'm the only one left. We had a Mike Bell who raced, uh, like Hangtown. He quit in like '83, and then some Mike Bell raced Hangtown in like '94. And we're like, he would have been like. 45 years old, and he got like 12th place. We're like, I don't think that's the Mike Bell from <laughs> from Supercross. Yeah, but um, the Mike Bell's a little more common than name than yeah, Semex. True, true that. So yeah. next year uh, down in Florida, now uh, riding, teaching, doing some schools. Are you going to do Loretta's again? You know, I didn't even know I was going to do it last year. It was kind of a week to week thing, right. and uh, I'll right. see what happens. And that's when you get to be my age, Steve. It's kind of a week to week thing. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, I'd like to do it. So if everything lines up again, I'd like to do it. We'll if, see. If the regional isn't too far, if the the area isn't too far, and you're not busy that weekend, you'll go out. Yeah, that that if I'm feeling good, don't have any nagging injuries or something. Yeah, so, yeah, I'll go out there and give it another try because it it was a great experience, and that's a I guess the only time that I ever felt like I had won a national. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it is a national. It's it an is. amateur it national. Yeah. But, you know, when I won the national, a few nationals here and there back in the 70s and 80s, um, those days were, were long gone. Right, right. But winning down there at Loretta's honestly felt like, man, I felt like I won a national again. Yeah, it yeah. Probably. That kind of feeling. Probably really helps your schools out, too, though. I mean, it's like, hey, kids, look at look at me. I mean, I you know. I went to Loretta's, and you know how much, how important Loretta's is for all these kids nowadays and everybody. So for you, yeah. I mean, it probably does nothing but help that it gives you street, street cred, Gary, is what they call it nowadays, what the kids call it. Yes. Yeah. Street cred. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I got a little video of that up on my homepage. If you click through there, uh-huh. the homepage screen, you can find, got some clips of uh, the race and me on the podium and stuff like that nice. from the Reddits. Anybody wants to see it? Um, well, hey, uh, thanks uh, Thanks for doing the BTOsports.com Racer X podcast presented by Thor MX. Um, uh, Gary Semex, thank you very much. Uh, a, a real innovator in motocross uh, schools and techniques and still doing it all these years later. So you must know a thing or two, I'm guessing, because, uh, like I said, you've been doing it a long time. Well, you get good at something that you love and you've done mm-hmm so long and it's my passion i'm really into it when i stopped racing i got into after the acting thing and everything mm-hmm. <laughs> but once i got into teaching you know it, it was the same thing i got a passion for it and uh really put a lot of effort into it so yeah i see that and uh yeah. you know i i don't hold it against you that i didn't become a top racer <laughs> just despite one-on-one lessons and group lessons with you i just want you to know that i don't you know. Well, I appreciate that, Steve. I appreciate <laughs> I'm sure that. you're having a hard time sleeping at night, um, wondering about yeah. this. Uh, no, a uh, very smart guy, and and I thank you for doing this podcast. And uh, everybody should check it out, GarySemex.com, and uh, get yourself some speed right there. And uh, it's that easy. Thanks, Gary. Hey, thank you, man. I, I enjoyed it. Thanks, cool. Steve. All right, thanks. Yep. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Steve Mathis Show. Search Pulp MX in the iTunes Store to find the more than 200-episode archive or get the Pulp MX app for your iPhone for the complete Pulp MX fix.